5 in the red pew bibles if you have one so matthew chapter 1 beginning at verse 18 This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's just um, pray before we start. Father, really help us to hear you. Please do a work in our hearts and challenge us and, and comfort us in these days as we reflect on how you are our Emmanuel, God truly with us. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. I think I've said this in this church before. My favorite carol is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Sadly, we're not singing it um, today, but um, it's that amazing, beautiful carol, this amazing poem with this evocative tune. I was going to sing, I'll sing a little bit. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. You know that one? A bit more. A bit more. Uh, <clears throat> too soon, too soon. But it's beautiful. It highlights the words of the Old Testament prophets as they waited for the coming of the Messiah. Our previous hymn um, did exactly the same, this waiting, this yearning. In our passage, we see the words of these prophets literally coming true before our eyes. For Jesus will be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this morning, I'd love us to think about what it means for us today for Jesus to be Emmanuel, for Jesus to be God, for, for Jesus to be us, to be human, and for Jesus to be with us. For as we see Jesus Christ as God, this triggers in us a crisis, but it brings deep comfort and indeed can inspire great courage. Look with me at verse 23, right at the end of the passage that we had read to us. There is this fundamental jaw-dropping, earth-stopping claim, the claim that Jesus Christ is God. Emmanuel, God with us. Around 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 had made this intriguing announcement 
the virgin will give birth, will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. When the people heard that, they were enduring an incredibly hard time. It was a time of war and of strife and of worry and of all sorts of stuff going on, very similar in some ways to what we have today. Isaiah described those years as distressful, dark years of darkness and gloom. And yet we read these words from the same writer, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What an announcement. Even with war and strife and inflation and worry and not knowing where their next meal were coming from, their eyes were drawn to a bigger figure in history, one who would silence the battlefield, one who would restore God's world order. But who would that be? Isaiah says it's a child, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will be an ideal ruler, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This amazing child would transform the world. This someone, this mighty God, would reign with peace and justice and compassion forever. What an announcement to a gloomy world. But no one in Matthew's day took this announcement literally. For centuries, the religious leaders saw this as a prophecy, but not something to be taken literally. They saw the coming of a, of a great leader as someone who would free Israel from the occupying forces of the Romans. And though this leader, um, well, God would be perhaps present or working through this leader figuratively, but not literally, this would be God on earth. So Matthew, a Jew, says, no, the birth of Jesus is God coming to earth here and right now. It literally is true. God is here in human flesh. The main New Testament writers portray the same literal reality. Jesus is God. John makes a similar announcement in his kind of Christmas um, version of events. He says this, God is, is here. He was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His home among us. We know those words, don't we? The Apostle Paul, also a Jew, tells us in Colossians that all the fullness of the Godhead lives in Christ. Not half the fullness of God or a bit of God, but the whole fullness of God is in Jesus, who is fully God. But Jesus himself tells us he is God, not directly, but by the way he lived his life, by what he did and what he taught. All through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly forgiving sin, something only God can do. And everybody knows that when they see it. Jesus was always saying that he would come back to judge the world, to judge the earth. Again, something only God can do, and everybody at that time knew it. 
Even at one point, Jesus uses the, these words, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes on the, the very divine name, I am, for himself. Over and over again, Jesus, a Jew, tells us that he was God. And many of his followers, by the end of his life, were falling down and worshiping him. You see, back then, the idea of God with us or in us wasn't that unusual. The, the Greek and the Romans, they had their Zeus and their Mercury, and people coming in human, gods coming in human form. But for the Jew, this idea of God coming in human form was absolutely unthinkable. The Jews wouldn't even utter the word Yahweh or the name of God in public. They wouldn't even write it down or spell it. Yet Jesus, by his life, his amazing claims, his, his death and resurrection, convinced his closest followers that he wasn't just some prophet come to tell you how to find God, but that he was God come to find us. It's amazing. And I'm intrigued by this. Every other religion differs from Christianity here. Every other religion is started by some guru or some prophet who claims to tell us how to find God. Do you get that? But with Christianity, our founder, Jesus Christ, is God who has come to find us. That is beautiful. That is amazing. Jesus is God. That is a claim. And the claim that Jesus Christ is God, well, it, it triggers a crisis, maybe even a crisis for some of us here. It's like there's a, a fork in the road when we're confronted by this. You have to choose one way or the other, and there are great implications with this fork, this crisis in the road. Debs and I were driving in northern Italy on our holidays. <clears throat> I was driving and Debbie was navigating. We have our roles. I can't drive and navigate at the same time. Debbie was, no, I was driving. And there was a large six-lane um, motorway that we were on in northern Italy and there was a fork in the road coming and there was a crisis. There was a choice coming very fast. Which way do we go? Now, confidently, I headed for the left fork. I knew where I was going. And Debbie woke from her slumber and went, right, drive right. And you can get it. The implication of that sudden change of direction meant that instead of going around Venice, we went into Venice. <laughs> That's not, that is true. <laughs> She'll kill me later. But you'll see what I'm saying. The claim that Jesus Christ is God actually brings this, this fork in the road, this crisis. When we see Jesus in action in the Gospels, you see Jesus moving about. He's meeting people. He's engaging. He's teaching. He's healing. And as Jesus moves about, he's always putting people into motion. He's like a giant snooker ball or... Anybody love the, the fest of curling, you know, the Scottish curler stones? And Jesus is, is moving down that ice and hitting off people, and the, all of the, the stones move in all sorts of directions. That was what the impact he had. Anybody that came into contact with him. 
So some people, as we see, are in a mad rush at him. They hate him. And they will move towards him to try and kill him. Others are terrified and scared and they run away. Get away from me. We know who you are, Jesus. We don't want anything to do with you. And yet others, well, they throw themselves on the ground in worship and they adore Jesus. They love him and they seek to know him and to obey him. Everybody is in motion because of this claim, this reality that Jesus is God. But why is it a crisis? Well, it's a crisis because if Jesus is who he says he is, then all of us have to deal with this. We all have to lay down our lives before him to make him the, the focus of our living and the, the center of everything that we do if he is God. If he's not who he says he is, then we will just hate him and despise him and we will want nothing to do with him or his claims on our lives at all. But the one thing that we never see in the Bible is this. Nobody ever stands up uh, having met Jesus or having listened to him speaking or whatever else and say to Jesus, ah, oh, that was a great sermon. Thanks for your talk. Happens to me all the time when I speak at CUs. Oh, that, was a great, that was a great talk, Adam. And they scurry off. But, but with Jesus, that, that can never happen. There's always a reaction. There's always a crisis with Jesus. There's no neutral place, just a fork in the road. Maybe some of you are at that fork. I think Ireland and England are, are full of people who've, well, they believe in Jesus, but they've, it's never revolutionized their lives. There's never been a crisis. They know about Jesus, but it has never got to their heart, has never challenged them. They've never surrendered to Jesus. They've never been terrorized by who he really is, God Almighty, come to meet them, come to, 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 to have an influence, to rule their lives. Jesus and the claim that he is God triggers this crisis. But it is also a great comfort. Why? Well, the announcement that God is with us, that God himself has come to earth, is a wonderful announcement of grace. And why is this a comfort to us? We're back to all the other religions again. Basically, they tell us how to live to please God or to appease God. Do this, do that. And maybe if you do these things, you will connect with God. But our faith, Christianity, says this is impossible for us to do. None of us are ever good enough to connect with God, to, to do the right things, to, to be with God, to be in relationship with Him. So God Himself has had to come to do these things for us, to do the things that we could never do ourselves. So he does not send someone to tell us how to save ourselves. God comes to save us. And so we can sing amazing grace. And in this moment where we know that Jesus is God, there is deep comfort. For we know our own lives. We know the reality and we know that we really do need a savior. 
The Bible narrative of the world is that God didn't make the world as we see it today with all the war and the conflict and the selfishness and the strife and the, the angst and the discord. God made this world a perfect place. But we have turned away from God, haven't we? And we've ruined it. But I wonder, are you sitting there wondering, oh, what a mess. Has God abandoned us? Where is he? Well, the answer to that question is not at all. Jesus Christ is God. And his coming at Christmas means God has landed into our dark and gloomy world. He hasn't abandoned us. He has come back. He has come back at Christmas, not as a judge, not this time. He hasn't come back with a sword in his hand to smite all the sinners of the world who have ruined his world. He came with a sword not in his hand, but he came with hands that would have nails put through them. He came to save sinners so that someday he would come back and, and reset the whole world and wipe it clean of all evil. And he would be that wonderful counselor, that mighty God, that everlasting Father, that Prince of Peace that we've all longed for, that we all will long for. He will come again and there is real comfort. There's real hope. Jesus is not just a moral teacher giving us good advice, but he is God himself who has come to save us and to rescue us, with his, with his, which is both a crisis, which way we go, and an incredible comfort. He saves us from our sins in the past. He's saving us from our sins in the present. And the great comfort, he will save us from our sins that we commit in the future. The claim that Jesus is God is both a crisis and a comfort to us. But there is more. Jesus is not only God, he is also us. He's human. The doctrine, I find it difficult to get my head around it, the doctrine of the incarnation states that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human. To put it in my terms, in simpler terms, he's both really God and he's really human. He really is both. Isn't that incredible? At the same time, when we see the baby Jesus, we see the face of the Lord God himself. But why is that a comfort? When someone says, how are you? In Dublin, fine, thanks. In the UK, yeah, fine, yeah, don't talk, don't, don't ask me anything else personal. <clears throat> Have you ever regretted giving an honest answer to that question, how are you? Um, oh dear, my notes have slipped all the way. How, there we go. Have you ever regretted giving an honest answer? Instead of saying, I'm fine, thanks, you actually say, oh, I'm feeling terrible. Oh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really down, I'm terribly lonely at the moment. And uh, I'm really, I'm really struggling. And the response from the very uncomfortable person is probably well-meaning. They try and cheer you up and go, oh, well, it'll be all right now. Just keep going. No, don't worry now. No harm done. You'll be grand. You know that. You'll be grand. That's a really great Irish phrase. You'll be fine. No problems. In Britain, it would be keep calm and carry on. You know, that would be what they would say. It's awful. 
you open your heart and you just, you really regret it. But what happens when you meet somebody who has been exactly through the sorts of things that you are going through? You, you go, oh, wow, this, this person understands. You, you kind of trust them. You, you click with them. You, you share your same experiences with them. You, you walk through those experiences. And the other person says, yeah, I've been through the same thing. And you have this coming together, this heart connection. You, you connect and you go, oh, you understand me because you've been through the same things that I've been through. Only Christianity teaches that God became not just a human being, but that he connects with us. That he was one who was born in a manger, who knew poverty, betrayal, suffering, bereavement, and death. And here's a comfort, whatever we're going through, whatever you're, you're currently enduring, God has been through these things and he understands because he's not just God, but he's us, he's human. And we think about the true meaning of Christmas, that God Almighty became flesh and he became vulnerable. And he became subject to everything that we feel and endure here. Christmas doesn't help us to see the, the why of our suffering. But Christmas shows us what your suffering and what our suffering isn't. It isn't that God doesn't care. It isn't that he is remote and indifferent. Christmas shows us how God has plunged himself into our real world, into our humanity. He is God with us. He became one of us. And he is a God who understands and God who walks with us. And a God who therefore can be trusted with the very details of our lives. That is a great comfort. Emmanuel Jesus Christ is God, he is us. And finally, he is with us. The word with means relationship. So to say Jesus is God with us is far more than the idea that God came to earth. He just came to earth, he sort of beamed down and he beamed back up again. God with us means he's relating with us. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. We read how Jesus appointed 12 disciples. He appointed them so that he, they would be with him. It's the same word. Jesus wanted his disciples to be together. He wanted to eat together, live, and have relationships with them, and to be in each other's lives. It's that same word, God with us, meaning relationship. So what does it take for God to be really with us, for God to be really with you? What does it take for you to have Jesus as an intimate friend and to have his influence and power and joy in you? What does it take for Jesus to be really in our lives in a way that it's not just believing in Jesus, but in a way that it's really an all-out life for Jesus? 
Well, the answer here in, in Matthew 1 is this. It's courage. It takes great courage to be all out for Jesus. The story of the birth of Jesus in the book of Luke is a real go-to for the Sunday School Nativity plays, isn't it? It has it all. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the little donkey, my inner Adrian Dunbar, and the stars and the shepherds and the three kings, and it ends with the angels singing glory to God in the highest, and everybody comes out and all the tinsel, and it's brilliant. But here in Matthew, the text doesn't end like that. It ends with shame and danger and bloodshed. Mary is, she's pregnant, she's out of wedlock, and she will endure shame and rejection as a result of these events. In the eyes of her peers, she will always be that second-class citizen who had a baby before she was married. And when the angel says to Joseph, marry Mary, Joseph knows that as Jesus Christ comes into his life, he's going to be rejected and thought ill of as somebody who married uh, this, 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 this young girl who was pregnant. And in the next chapter, we see Herod out to destroy the Messiah with his massacre of the babies. And Matthew is communicating that this Emmanuel God with us, this coming of the gospel is coming with violent hostility. So what is Matthew 1 and 2 really saying? I think it's saying this, if you want Jesus Christ in your life so that he is with you, it is going to take courage. You are going to need to be courageous. You see, in our lives today, where, why, where might we need that courage? I think we need courage to take the world's contempt of us as Christians. Think about Joseph down in the pub. Can you imagine, I hope that's not too irreverent, but can you imagine for a minute Joseph telling everybody in the pub the truth about what has happened between him and Mary? She's really pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And they're going, ah, come on, give us a, go on, get real, will you? Can you imagine the teasing? Can you imagine the, the questions? Well, if it's not you, Joseph, who is it? They would never understand, would they? There would be this dilemma that Joseph would face forever in society. They would always think ill of him. And in our world of work, maybe some of you are in university, some of you perhaps still in school, if you say you're a Christian, there will be a lot of people, most people in our world will never understand. In fact, they will judge us. They will make assumptions about all sorts of things. They will draw conclusions that, that society is drawing about what we believe and what we stand for. You are hardliners, you are traditionalists, you, you're out of touch, you are off tone. That's what we are told nowadays. And so the reputation of Joseph, Mary, and 
and those, those early participants in this gospel message, gone. For us as Christians, our reputation in today's society is also gone. And we need courage to face the dismissal, the contempt of an angry culture that wants nothing to do with God at all. And yet, why did Jesus Christ come into the world through a pregnant, unwed teenage girl in a male-dominated shame and honor culture? There might have been easier ways. God didn't have to do it this way. But I think it was God's way of saying, if we put Jesus Christ in the center of our lives, then Jesus will be our honor. He will become for us our honor. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. For God, the creator of the universe, is in our lives. And he will bring us and protect us and bring all the honor and vindication that we need. God with us in a world that is hostile. We need great courage. And we also need great courage to give up our right to, to, to self-rule. If we want Jesus Christ in the middle of our lives, then you have got, we've got to obey him unconditionally. We've got to give up our rights to be in control and to, to rule ourselves. Where am I coming from? Well, if you look in our story, do you see how God tells Joseph what the name of the boy is going to be? In Joseph's big moment, it was a father's right and his, his moment of pride to name his son. But the angels take this moment away from Joseph. The Christmas story shows us that if you want Jesus in the middle of your life, even the baby Jesus in your life, you are not his manager. He is your manager. You can't say, I want a bit of Jesus, um, and I don't want that bit. You can't redesign or rename Jesus to suit ourselves. We can't treat Jesus as a consultant or a life coach and not as Lord. We can't say, oh, I'm happy to take some recommendations. I might do this bit. We have to give it all up for the baby in the manger who is Emmanuel, God with us. And that takes great courage. And finally, you need to have great courage. I need to have great courage to admit that, that I am a sinner, that you are a sinner. What is Jesus' entire mission? It says in our passage here that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus comes to, to love us and to be with us and to relate to us. But all of this comes only when we admit our sins, when we admit that we are alienated from God in the way that we live our lives, that we don't naturally love God, we don't love our neighbors, ourselves, in our thoughts, in our worlds, in our words, in our attitudes, in our deeds. My goodness, we are guilty and we need forgiveness and we need pardon. And it takes enormous courage for people in our society today, for you and I to admit that we are sinners and that we need a Savior day 
by day by day. Do you know by admitting that we are sinners, that is the foundation of all else that Jesus brings into our lives this Christmas. And everything else flows from this submission to the Lord and to ask him to save us from our sins. And that takes great courage. So where do we get the strength to be courageous like this? We get this strength by looking to Jesus himself. If you think it takes courage for us to be with Jesus, then it takes infinitely more courage for him to be with us. Jesus needed incredible courage. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, God became vulnerable. God became one who could be betrayed, and he was. God became one who could be rejected, who could be tortured and killed, and he was. And he did that for you, and he did that for me, because he thought each of us was worth this life, this vulnerable life as a human, fully God, come to save us. Why was Jesus so courageous to do what he did for us? He did this because of his great love for us. He did this because he loves us. God, Emmanuel, fully God, fully human, relating, making his home with us. You know, this helps us to have the courage to put Jesus at the center of our lives. His love, which we will remember in a few minutes at the Lord's table, is that love that came down at Christmas to make his home with us, to give us the great courage to live for him and to speak for him. Let's pray. We sang these words earlier. Oh, come, though I have nothing, see what God has done. Christ is born for you. Christ is born for you. And so, Lord, we use the words of another carol as we bow our hearts before you. O oh, holy child of Bethlehem, Descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the, the Christmas angel, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Oh Lord, give us great courage to live for you this day. And help us to worship you and to trust you and to thank you this Christmas for you are God with us, Emmanuel. Amen.